Gildan Media presents Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life Written by Hector Garcia and Francesc Miralles Translated by Heather Cleary Read by Walter Dixon Prologue Ikigai, A Mysterious Word this audiobook first came into being on a rainy night in Tokyo, when its authors sat down together for the first time in one of the city's tiny bars. We had each read each other's work, but had never met, thanks to the thousands of miles that separate Barcelona from the capital of Japan. Then a mutual acquaintance put us in touch, launching a friendship that led to this project and seems destined to last a lifetime. The next time we got together, a year later, we strolled through a park in downtown Tokyo and ended up talking about trends in Western psychology specifically logotherapy, which helps people find their purpose in life. We remarked that Viktor Frankl's logotherapy had gone out of fashion among practicing therapists, who favored other schools of psychology, though people still search for meaning in what they do and how they live. We ask ourselves things like, what is the meaning of my life? Is the point just to live longer, or should I seek a higher purpose? Why do some people know what they want and have a passion for life, while others languish in confusion? At some point in our conversation, the mysterious word ikigai came up. This Japanese concept, which translates roughly as the happiness of always being busy, is like logotherapy, but it goes a step beyond. It also seems to be one way of explaining the extraordinary longevity of the Japanese, especially on the island of Okinawa, where there are 24.55 people over the age of 100 for every 100,000 inhabitants, far more than the global average. Those who study why the inhabitants of this island in the south of Japan live longer than people anywhere else in the world believe that one of the keys, in addition to a healthful diet, a simple life in the outdoors, green tea and the subtropical climate, its average temperature is like that of Hawaii, is the ikigai that shapes their lives. While researching this concept, we discovered that not a single book in the fields of psychology or personal development is dedicated to bringing this philosophy to the West. Is Ikigai the reason there are more centenarians in Okinawa than anywhere else? How does it inspire people to stay active until the very end? What is the secret to a long and happy life? As we explored the matter further, we discovered that one place in particular, Ogimi, a rural town on the north end of the island with a population of 3,000, boasts the highest life expectancy in the world, a fact that has earned it the nickname of the Village of Longevity. Okinawa is where most of Japan's shikawasa, a lime-like fruit that packs an extraordinary antioxidant punch, comes from. Could that be Ogimi's secret to long life? Or is it the purity of the water used to brew its moringa tea? We decided to go study the secrets of the Japanese centenarians in person. After a year of preliminary research, we arrived in the village, where residents speak an ancient dialect and practice an animist religion that features long-haired forest sprites called bunagaya, with our cameras and recording devices in hand. As soon as we arrived, we could sense the incredible friendliness of its residents, who laughed and joked incessantly amid lush green hills fed by crystalline waters. As we conducted our interviews with the eldest residents of the town, we realized that something far more powerful than just these natural resources was at work. An uncommon joy flows from its inhabitants and guides them through the long and pleasurable journey of their lives. Again, the mysterious Ikigai. But what is it exactly? How do you get it? It never ceased to surprise us that this haven of nearly eternal life was located precisely in Okinawa, where 200,000 innocent lives were lost at the end of World War II. Rather than harbor animosity toward outsiders, however, Okinawans live by the principle of Icha-riba chode, a local expression that means treat everyone like a brother, even if you've never met them before. It turns out that one of the secrets to happiness of Ogimi's residents is feeling like part of a community. From an early age, they practice yui ma'aru, or teamwork, and so are used to helping one another. Nurturing friendships, eating light, getting enough rest, and doing regular, moderate exercise are all part of the equation of good health. But at the heart of the joie de vivre that inspires these centenarians to keep celebrating birthdays and cherishing each new day is their ikigai. The purpose of this audiobook is to bring the secrets of Japan's centenarians to you and give you the tools to find your own ikigai. 
because those who discover their ikigai have everything they need for a long and joyful journey through life. Happy Travels Hector Garcia and Francesc Miralles Chapter 1 Ikigai The Art of Staying Young While Growing Old What is your reason for being? According to the Japanese, everyone has an ikigai, what a French philosopher might call a raison d'etre. Some people have found their ikigai, while others are still looking, though they carry it within them. Our ikigai is hidden deep inside each of us, and finding it requires a patient search. According to those born on Okinawa, the island with the most centenarians in the world, our ikigai is the reason we get up in the morning. Ikigai can be described as the common ground you find between what you're good at, what you love, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. Whatever you do, don't retire. Having a clearly defined ikigai brings satisfaction, happiness, and meaning to our lives. The purpose of this audiobook is to help you find yours and to share insights from Japanese philosophy on the lasting health of body, mind, and spirit. One surprising thing you notice living in Japan is how active people remain after they retire. In fact, many Japanese people never really retire. They keep doing what they love for as long as their health allows. There is, in fact, no word in Japanese that means retire in the sense of leaving the workforce for good, as in English. According to Dan Butner, a National Geographic reporter who knows the country well, having a purpose in life is so important in Japanese culture that our idea of retirement simply doesn't exist there. The Island of Almost Eternal Youth Certain longevity studies suggest that a strong sense of community and a clearly defined ikigai are just as important as the famously healthful Japanese diet, perhaps even more so. Recent medical studies of centenarians from Okinawa and other so-called blue zones, the geographic regions where people live longest, provide a number of interesting facts about these extraordinary human beings. Not only do they live much longer than the rest of the world's population, they also suffer from fewer chronic illnesses, such as cancer and heart disease. Inflammatory disorders are also less common. Many of these centenarians enjoy enviable levels of vitality and health that would be unthinkable for people of advanced age elsewhere. Their blood tests reveal fewer free radicals, which are responsible for cellular aging, as a result of drinking tea and eating until their stomachs are only 80% full. Women experience more moderate symptoms during menopause, and both men and women maintain higher levels of sexual hormones until much later in life. The rate of dementia is well below the global average. Though we'll consider each of these findings over the course of the audiobook, research clearly indicates that the Okinawans' focus on ikigai gives a sense of purpose to each and every day and plays an important role in their health and longevity. The Characters Behind Ikigai in Japanese, ikigai is written by combining a character which means life with another which means to be worthwhile, and that can be broken down to the characters which mean armor, number one, and to be the first, to head into battle, taking initiative as a leader, and another character which means beautiful or elegant. The Five Blue Zones Okinawa holds first place among the world's blue zones. In Okinawa, women in particular live longer and have fewer diseases than anywhere else in the world. The five regions identified and analyzed by Dan Butner in his book, The Blue Zones, are 1. Okinawa, Japan, especially the northern part of the island. The locals eat a diet rich in vegetables and tofu, typically served on small plates. In addition to their philosophy of ikigai, the moai, or close-knit group of friends, plays an important role in their longevity. 2. Sardinia, Italy, specifically the provinces of Nuoro and Ogliastra. Locals on this island consume plenty of vegetables and one or two glasses of wine per day. As in Okinawa, the cohesive nature of this community is another factor directly related to longevity. 3. Loma Linda, California. 
researchers studied a group of Seventh-day Adventists who are among the longest living people in the United States. 4. The Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica Locals remain remarkably active after 90. Many of the region's older residents have no problem getting up at 5.30 in the morning to work in the fields. 5. Ikaria, Greece One of every three inhabitants of this island near the coast of Turkey is over 90 years old, compared to less than 1% of the population of the United States, a fact that has earned it the nickname of the Island of Long Life. The local secret seems to be a lifestyle that dates back to 500 B.C. In the following chapters, we'll examine several factors that seem to be the keys to longevity and are found across the Blue Zones, paying special attention to Okinawa and its so-called Village of Longevity. First, however, it's worth pointing out that three of these regions are islands where resources can be scarce and communities have to help one another. For many, helping others might be an ikigai strong enough to keep them alive. According to scientists who have studied the five blue zones, the keys to longevity are diet, exercise, finding a purpose in life, an ikigai, and forming strong social ties, that is, having a broad circle of friends and good family relations. Members of these communities manage their time well in order to reduce stress, consume little meat or processed foods, and drink alcohol in moderation. They don't do strenuous exercise, but they do move every day, taking walks and working in their vegetable gardens. People in the blue zones would rather walk than drive. Gardening, which involves daily, low-intensity movement, is a practice almost all of them have in common. The 80% Secret One of the most common sayings in Japan is harahachibu, which is repeated before or after eating, and means something like Fill your belly to 80%. Ancient wisdom advises against eating until we are full. This is why Okinawans stop eating when they feel their stomachs reach 80% of their capacity, rather than overeating and wearing down their bodies with long digestive processes that accelerate cellular oxidation. Of course, there is no way to know objectively if your stomach is at 80% capacity. The lesson to learn from this saying is that we should stop eating when we're starting to feel full. The extra side dish, the snack we eat when we know in our hearts we don't really need it, the apple pie after lunch, all these will give us pleasure in the short term, but not having them will make us happier in the long term. The way food is served is also important. By presenting their meals on many small plates, the Japanese tend to eat less. A typical meal in a restaurant in Japan is served in five plates on a tray, four of them very small and the main dish slightly bigger. Having five plates in front of you makes it seem like you're going to eat a lot, but what happens most of the time is that you end up feeling slightly hungry. This is one of the reasons why Westerners in Japan typically lose weight and stay trim. Recent studies by nutritionists reveal that Okinawans consume a daily average of 1,800 to 1,900 calories, compared to 2,200 to 3,300 in the United States, and have a body mass index between 18 and 22 compared to 26 or 27 in the United States. The Okinawan diet is rich in tofu, sweet potatoes, fish three times per week, and vegetables, roughly 11 ounces per day. In the chapter dedicated to nutrition, we'll see which healthy, antioxidant-rich foods are included in this 80%. Moai, connected for life. It is customary in Okinawa to form close bonds within local communities. A moai is an informal group of people with common interests who look out for one another. For many, serving the community becomes part of their ikigai. The moai has its origins in hard times, when farmers would get together to share best practices and help one another cope with meager harvests. Members of a moai make a set monthly contribution to the group. This payment allows them to participate in meetings, dinners, games of Go and Shogi, Japanese chess, or whatever hobby they have in common. The funds collected by the group are used for activities, but if there's money left over, one member, decided on a rotating basis, receives a set amount from the surplus. In this way, being part of a moai helps maintain emotional and financial stability. If a member of a moai is in financial trouble, he or she can get an advance from the group's savings. 
While the details of each moai's accounting practices vary according to the group and its economic means, the feeling of belonging and support gives the individual a sense of security and helps increase life expectancy. Following this brief introduction to the topics covered in this audiobook, we look at a few causes of premature aging in modern life and then explore different factors related to ikigai. Chapter 2. Anti-Aging Secrets Little Things That Add Up to a Long and Happy Life Aging's Escape Velocity and the Rabbit Imagine a sign far off in the future with a number on it that represents the age of your death. Every year that you live, you advance closer to the sign. When you reach the sign, you die. Now, imagine a rabbit holding the sign and walking to the future. Every year that you live, the rabbit is half a year as far away. After a while, you will reach the rabbit and die. But what if the rabbit could walk at a pace of one year for every year of your life? You would never be able to catch the rabbit, and therefore you would never die. The speed at which the rabbit walks to the future is our technology. The more we advance technology and knowledge of our bodies, the faster we can make the rabbit walk. Aging's escape velocity is the moment at which the rabbit walks at a pace of one year per year or faster, and we become immortal. Aging's escape velocity For more than a century, we've managed to add an average of 0.3 years to our life expectancy every year. But what would happen if we had the technology to add a year of life expectancy every year? In theory, we would achieve biological immortality, having reached aging's escape velocity. Researchers with an eye to the future, such as Ray Kurzweil and Aubrey de Grey, claim that we'll reach this escape velocity in a matter of decades. Other scientists are less optimistic, predicting that we'll reach a limit, a maximum age we won't be able to surpass no matter how much technology we have. For example, some biologists assert that our cells stop regenerating after about 120 years. Active mind, youthful body. There is much wisdom in the classic saying, mens sana in corpore sano, a sound mind and a sound body. It reminds us that both mind and body are important, and that the health of one is connected to that of the other. It's been shown that maintaining an active, adaptable mind is one of the key factors in staying young. Having a youthful mind also drives you toward a healthy lifestyle that will slow the aging process. Just as a lack of physical exercise has negative effects on our bodies and mood, a lack of mental exercise is bad for us because it causes our neurons and neural connections to deteriorate and, as a result, reduces our ability to react to our surroundings. This is why it's so important to give your brain a workout. One pioneer in advocating for mental exercise is the Israeli neuroscientist Shlomo Bresnitz, who argues that the brain needs a lot of stimulation in order to stay in shape. As he stated in an interview with Edward Punsett for the Spanish television program Redis, There is a tension between what is good for someone and what they want to do. This is because people, especially older people, like to do things as they've always done them. The problem is that when the brain develops ingrained habits, it doesn't need to think anymore. Things get done quickly and efficiently on automatic pilot, often in a very advantageous way. This creates a tendency to stick to routines, and the only way of breaking these is to confront the brain with new information. Presented with new information, the brain creates new connections and is revitalized. This is why it's so important to expose yourself to change, even if stepping outside your comfort zone means feeling a bit of anxiety. The effects of mental training have been scientifically demonstrated. According to Collins Hemingway and Shlomo Bresnitz in their book, Maximum Brain Power, Challenging the Brain for Health and Wisdom, Mental training is beneficial on many levels. You begin exercising your brain by doing a certain task for the first time, he writes, and at first it seems very difficult, but as you learn how to do it, the training is already working. The second time you realize that it's easier, not harder to do because you're getting better at it. This has a fantastic effect on a person's mood. In and of itself, it's a transformation that affects not only the results obtained, but also his or her self-image. This description of a mental workout might sound a bit formal, but simply interacting with others, playing a game, for example, offers new stimuli 
and helps prevent the depression that can come with solitude. Our neurons start to age while we're still in our 20s. This process is slowed, however, by intellectual activity, curiosity, and a desire to learn. Dealing with new situations, learning something new every day, playing games, and interacting with other people seem to be essential for anti-aging strategies for the mind. Furthermore, a more positive outlook in this regard will yield greater mental benefits. Stress, accused of killing longevity. Many people seem older than they are. Research into the causes of premature aging has shown that stress has a lot to do with it because the body wears down much faster during periods of crisis. The American Institute of Stress investigated this degenerative process and concluded that most health problems are caused by stress. Researchers at the Heidelberg University Hospital conducted a study in which they subjected a young doctor to a job interview, which they made even more stressful by forcing him to solve complex math problems for 30 minutes. Afterward, they took a blood sample. What they discovered was that his antibodies had reacted to stress the same way they react to pathogens, activating the proteins that trigger an immune response. The problem is that this response not only neutralizes harmful agents, it also damages healthy cells leading them to age prematurely. The University of California conducted a similar study, taking data and samples from 39 women who had high levels of stress due to the illness of one of their children and comparing them to samples from women with healthy children and low levels of stress. They found that stress promotes cellular aging by weakening cell structures known as telomeres, which affect cellular regeneration and how our cells age. As the study revealed, the greater the stress, the greater the degenerative effects on cells. How does stress work? These days, people live at a frantic pace and in a nearly constant state of competition. At this fever pitch, stress is a natural response to the information being received by the body as potentially dangerous or problematic. Theoretically, this is a useful reaction as it helps us survive in hostile surroundings. Over the course of our evolution, we have used this response to deal with difficult situations and to flee from predators. The alarm that goes off in our head makes our neurons activate the pituitary gland, which produces hormones that release corticotropin, which in turn circulates through the body via the sympathetic nervous system. The adrenal gland is then triggered to release adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline raises our respiratory rate and pulse and prepares our muscles for action, getting the body ready to react to perceived danger, while cortisol increases the release of dopamine and blood glucose, which is what gets us charged up and allows us to face challenges. These processes are, in moderation, beneficial. They help us overcome challenges in our daily lives. Nonetheless, the stress to which human beings are subjected today is clearly harmful. Compare the lives of cave dwellers with modern humans. Cave dwellers were relaxed most of the time. Modern humans work most of the time and are alert to any and all threats. Cave dwellers felt stress only in very specific situations. Modern humans are online or waiting for notifications from their cell phones 24 hours a day. To cave dwellers, the threats were real. A predator could end their lives at any moment. For modern humans, the brain associates the ping of a cell phone or an email notification with the threat of a predator. For cave dwellers, high doses of cortisol and adrenaline at moments of danger kept the body healthy. In modern humans, Low doses of cortisol flow constantly through the body, with implications for a range of health problems, including adrenal fatigue and chronic fatigue syndrome. Stress has a degenerative effect over time. A sustained state of emergency affects the neurons associated with memory, as well as inhibiting the release of certain hormones, the absence of which can cause depression. Its secondary effects include irritability, insomnia, anxiety, and high blood pressure. As such, Though challenges are good for keeping mind and body active, we should adjust our high-stress lifestyles in order to avoid the premature aging of our bodies. Be mindful about reducing stress. Whether or not the threats we perceive are real, stress is an easily identifiable condition that not only causes anxiety, but is also highly psychosomatic, affecting everything from our digestive system to our skin. This is why prevention is so important in avoiding the toll that stress takes on us and why many experts recommend practicing mindfulness. 
The central premise of this stress reduction method is focusing on the self, noticing our responses, even if they are conditioned by habit, in order to be fully conscious of them. In this way, we connect with the here and now and limit thoughts that tend to spiral out of control. We have to learn to turn off the autopilot that's steering us in an endless loop. We all know people who snack while talking on the phone or watching the news. You ask them if the omelet they just ate had an onion in it, and they can't tell you, says Roberto Alcibar, who abandoned his fast-paced life to become a certified instructor of mindfulness after an illness threw him into a period of acute stress. One way to reach such a state of mindfulness is through meditation, which helps filter the information that reaches us from the outside world. It can also be achieved through breathing exercises, yoga, and body scans. Achieving mindfulness involves a gradual process of training, but with a bit of practice, we can learn to focus our mind completely, which reduces stress and helps us live longer. A little stress is good for you. While sustained, intense stress is a known enemy of longevity and both mental and physical health, low levels of stress have been shown to be beneficial. After observing a group of test subjects for more than 20 years, Dr. Howard S. Friedman, a psychology professor at the University of California, Riverside, discovered that people who maintained a low level of stress, who faced challenges and put their heart and soul into their work in order to succeed, lived longer than those who chose a more relaxed lifestyle and retired earlier. From this, he concluded that a small dose of stress is a positive thing, as those who live with low levels of stress tend to develop healthier habits, smoke less, and drink less alcohol. Given this, it's not surprising that many of the supercentenarians, people who live to be 110 or more, whom you'll meet in this audiobook, talk about having lived intense lives and working well into old age. A lot of sitting will age you. In the Western world in particular, the rise in sedentary behavior has led to numerous diseases, such as hypertension and obesity, which in turn affect longevity. Spending too much time seated at work or at home not only reduces muscular and respiratory fitness, but also increases appetite and curbs the desire to participate in activities. Being sedentary can lead to hypertension, imbalanced eating, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and even certain kinds of cancer. Recent studies have shown a connection between a lack of physical activity and the progressive distortion of telomeres in the immune system, which ages those cells and, in turn, the organism as a whole. This is a problem at all life stages, not only among adults. Sedentary children suffer from high rates of obesity and all its associated health issues and risks, which is why it's so important to develop a healthy and active lifestyle at an early age. It's easy to be less sedentary. It just takes a bit of effort and a few changes to your routine. We can access a more active lifestyle that makes us feel better inside and out. We just have to add a few ingredients to our everyday habits. Walk to work, or just go on a walk, for at least 20 minutes each day. Use your feet instead of an elevator or escalator. This is good for your posture, your muscles, and your respiratory system, among other things. Participate in social or leisure activities, so that you don't spend too much time in front of the television. Replace your junk food with fruit, and you'll have less of an urge to snack and more nutrients in your system. Get the right amount of sleep. Seven to nine hours is good, but any more than that makes us lethargic. Play with children or pets, or join a sports team. This not only strengthens the body, but also stimulates the mind and boosts self-esteem. Be conscious of your daily routine in order to detect harmful habits and replace them with more positive ones. By making these small changes, we can begin to renew our bodies and minds and increase our life expectancy. A model's best-kept secret. Though we age both externally and internally, both physically and mentally, one of the things that tell us the most about people's age is their skin, which takes on different textures and colors according to processes going on beneath the surface. Most of those who make their living as models claim to sleep between 9 and 10 hours the night before a fashion show. This gives their skin a taut, wrinkle-free appearance and a healthy radiant glow. Science has shown that sleep is a key anti-aging tool because when we sleep, we generate melatonin, 
a hormone that occurs naturally in our bodies. The pineal gland produces it from the neurotransmitter serotonin, according to our diurnal and nocturnal rhythms, and it plays a role in our sleep and waking cycles. A powerful antioxidant, melatonin, helps us live longer and also offers the following benefits. It strengthens the immune system. It contains an element that protects against cancer. It promotes the natural production of insulin. It slows the onset of Alzheimer's disease. It helps prevent osteoporosis and fight heart disease. For all these reasons, melatonin is a great ally in preserving youth. It should be noted, however, that melatonin production decreases after age 30. We can compensate for this by eating a balanced diet and getting more calcium, soaking up a moderate amount of sun each day, getting enough sleep, avoiding stress, alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, all of which make it harder to get a good night's rest, depriving us of the melatonin we need. Experts are trying to determine whether artificially stimulating production of melatonin might help slow the aging process, which would confirm the theory that we already carry the secret to longevity within us. Anti-Aging Attitudes The mind has tremendous power over the body and how quickly it ages. Most doctors agree that the secret to keeping the body young is keeping the mind active, a key element of ikigai, and not caving in when we face difficulties throughout our lives. One study, conducted at Yeshiva University, found that the people who live the longest have two dispositional traits in common, a positive attitude and a high degree of emotional awareness. In other words, those who face challenges with a positive outlook and are able to manage their emotions are already well on their way toward longevity. A stoic attitude, serenity in the face of a setback, can also help keep you young, as it lowers anxiety and stress levels and stabilizes behavior. This can be seen in the greater life expectancies of certain cultures with unhurried, deliberate lifestyles. Many centenarians and supercentenarians have similar profiles. They've had full lives that were difficult at times, but they knew how to approach these challenges with a positive attitude and not be overwhelmed by the obstacles they faced. Alexander Image, who in 2014 became the world's oldest living man at age 111, knew he had good genes, but understood that other factors contributed too. The life you live is equally or more important for longevity, he said in an interview with Reuters after being added to Guinness World Records in 2014. An Ode to Longevity During our stay in Ogimi, the village that holds the Guinness record for longevity, a woman who was about to turn 100 years old sang the following song for us in a mixture of Japanese and the local dialect. To keep healthy and have a long life, eat just a little of everything with relish. Go to bed early, get up early, and then go out for a walk. We live each day with serenity, and we enjoy the journey. To keep healthy and have a long life, we get on well with all our friends. Spring, summer, fall, winter, we happily enjoy all the seasons. The secret is not to get distracted by how old the fingers are, from the fingers to the head and back once again. If you keep moving with your fingers working, one hundred years will come to you. We can now use our fingers to play the next chapter, where we'll look at the close relationship between longevity and discovering our life's mission. Chapter 3 From Logotherapy to Ikigai How to Live Longer and Better by Finding Your Purpose What is logotherapy? A colleague once asked Viktor Frankl to define his school of psychology in a single phrase, to which Frankl replied, Well, in logotherapy, the patient sits up straight and has to listen to things that are, on occasion, hard to hear. The colleague had just described psychoanalysis to him in the following terms. In psychoanalysis, the patient lies down on a couch and tells you things that are, on occasion, hard to say. Frankl explains that one of the first questions he would ask his patients was, why do you not commit suicide? Usually the patient found good reasons not to and was able to carry on. What then does logotherapy do? The answer is pretty clear. It helps you find reasons to live. Logotherapy pushes patients to consciously discover their life's purpose in order to confront their neuroses. Their quest to fulfill their destiny 
than motivates them to press forward, breaking the mental chains of the past and overcoming whatever obstacles they encounter along the way. Something to Live For A study conducted by Frankel in his Vienna clinic found that, among both patients and personnel, around 80% believed that human beings needed a reason for living, and around 60% felt they had someone or something in their lives worth dying for. The Search for Meaning The search for purpose became a personal driving force that allowed Frankel to achieve his goals. The process of logotherapy can be summarized in these five steps. 1. A person feels empty, frustrated, or anxious. 2. The therapist shows him that what he is feeling is the desire to have a meaningful life. 3. The patient discovers his life's purpose at that particular point in time. 4. Of his own free will, the patient decides to accept or reject that destiny. 5. This newfound passion for life helps him overcome obstacles and sorrows. Frankel himself would live and die for his principles and ideals. His experiences as a prisoner at Auschwitz showed him that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. It was something he had to go through alone, without any help, and it inspired him for the rest of his life. Ten Differences Between Psychoanalysis and Logotherapy Psychoanalysis The patient reclines on a couch, like a patient. Logotherapy The patient sits facing the therapist, who guides him or her without passing judgment. Psychoanalysis is retrospective, it looks to the past. Logotherapy looks toward the future. Psychoanalysis is introspective. It analyzes neuroses. Logotherapy does not delve into the patient's neuroses. In psychoanalysis, the drive is toward pleasure. In logotherapy, the drive is toward purpose and meaning. Psychoanalysis centers on psychology. Logotherapy includes a spiritual dimension. Psychoanalysis works on psychogenic neuroses. Logotherapy also works on noogenic or existential neuroses. Psychoanalysis analyzes the unconscious origin of conflicts, instinctual dimension. Logotherapy deals with conflicts when and where they arise, spiritual dimension. Psychoanalysis limits itself to the patient's instincts. Logotherapy also deals with spiritual realities. Psychoanalysis is fundamentally incompatible with faith. Logotherapy is compatible with faith. Psychoanalysis seeks to reconcile conflicts and satisfy impulses and instincts. Logotherapy seeks to help the patient find meaning in his life and satisfy his moral principles. Fight for Yourself Existential frustration arises when our life is without purpose or when that purpose is skewed. In Frankel's view, however, there's no need to see this frustration as an anomaly or a symptom of neurosis. Instead, it can be a positive thing, a catalyst for change. Logotherapy does not see this frustration as mental illness, the way other forms of therapy do, but rather as spiritual anguish, a natural and beneficial phenomenon that drives those who suffer from it to seek a cure, whether on their own or with the help of others, and in so doing, find greater satisfaction in life. It helps them change their own destiny. Logotherapy enters the picture if a person needs help doing this, if he needs guidance in discovering his life's purpose and later in overcoming conflict so he can keep moving towards his objective. In Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel cites one of Nietzsche's famous aphorisms. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Based on his own experience, Frankel believed that our health depends on that natural tension that comes from comparing what we've accomplished so far with what we'd like to achieve in the future. What we need, then, is not a peaceful existence, but a challenge we can strive to meet by applying all the skills at our disposal. Existential crisis, on the other hand, is typical of modern societies in which people do what they're told to do or what others do, rather than what they want to do. 
They often try to fill the gap between what is expected of them and what they want for themselves with economic power or physical pleasure or by numbing their senses. It can even lead to suicide. Sunday neurosis, for example, is what happens when, without the obligations and commitments of the work week, the individual realizes how empty he is inside. He has to find a solution. Above all, he has to find his purpose, his reason for getting out of bed, his ikigai. I feel empty inside. In a study conducted at the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital, Frankel's team found that 55% of the patients they interviewed were experiencing some degree of existential crisis. According to logotherapy, discovering one's purpose in life helps an individual fill that existential void. Frankel, a man who faced his problems and turned his objectives into actions, could look back on his life in peace as he grew old. He did not have to envy those still enjoying their youth, because he had amassed a broad set of experiences that showed he had lived for something. Better Living Through Logotherapy A Few Key Ideas We don't create the meaning of our life, as Sartre claimed. We discover it. We each have a unique reason for being, which can be adjusted or transformed many times over the years. Just as worry often brings about precisely the thing that was feared, excessive attention to a desire, or hyperintention, can keep that desire from being fulfilled. Humor can help break negative cycles and reduce anxiety. We all have the capacity to do noble or terrible things. The side of the equation we end up on depends on our decisions, not on the condition in which we find ourselves. In the following case studies, we'll look at four cases from Frankel's own practice in order to better understand the search for meaning and purpose. Case Study Victor Frankel In German concentration camps, as in those that would later be built in Japan and Korea, psychiatrists confirmed that the prisoners with the greatest chance of survival were those who had things they wanted to accomplish outside the camp those who felt a strong need to get out of there alive. This was true of Frankel, who, after being released and successfully developing the school of logotherapy, realized he had been the first patient of his own practice. Frankel had a goal to achieve, and it made him persevere. He arrived at Auschwitz carrying a manuscript that contained all the theories and research he compiled over the course of his career, ready for publication. When it was confiscated, he felt compelled to write it all over again and that need drove him, and gave his life meaning amid the constant horror and doubt of the concentration camp. So much so that over the years, and especially when he fell ill with typhus, he would jot down fragments and key words from the lost work on any scrap of paper he found. Case Study The American Diplomat an important North American diplomat went to Frankel to pick up where he left off with a course of treatment he had started five years earlier in the United States. When Frankel asked him why he had started therapy in the first place, the diplomat answered that he hated his job and his country's international policies, which he had to follow and enforce. His American psychoanalyst, whom he had been seeing for years, insisted he make peace with his father so that his government and his job, both representations of the paternal figure, would seem less disagreeable. Frankel, however, showed him in just a few sessions that his frustration was due to the fact that he wanted to pursue a different career, and the diplomat concluded his treatment with that idea in mind. Five years later, the former diplomat informed Frankel that he'd been working during that time in a different profession, and that he was happy. In Frankel's view, the man not only didn't need all those years of psychoanalysis, he also couldn't even really be considered a patient in need of therapy. He was simply someone in search of a new life's purpose. As soon as he found it, his life took on deeper meaning. Case Study The Suicidal Mother The mother of a boy who had died at age 11 was admitted to Frankel's clinic after she tried to kill herself and her other son. It was this other son, paralyzed since birth, who kept her from carrying out her plan. He did believe his life had a purpose, and if his mother killed them both, it would keep him from achieving his goals. The woman shared her story in a group session. To help her, 
Frankel asked another woman to imagine a hypothetical situation in which she lay on her deathbed, old and wealthy, but childless. The woman insisted that, in that case, she would have felt her life had been a failure. When the suicidal mother was asked to perform the same exercise, imagining herself on her deathbed, she looked back and realized that she had done everything in her power for her children, for both of them. She had given her paralyzed son a good life, and he had turned into a kind, reasonably happy person. To this she added, crying, As for myself, I can look back peacefully on my life, for I can say my life was full of meaning, and I have tried hard to live it fully. I have done my best. I have done my best for my son. My life was no failure. In this way, by imagining herself on her deathbed and looking back, the suicidal mother found the meaning that, though she was not aware of it, her life already had. Case Study The Grief-Stricken Doctor An elderly doctor, unable to overcome the deep depression into which he'd fallen after the death of his wife two years earlier, went to Frankel for help. Instead of giving him advice or analyzing his condition, Frankel asked him what would have happened if he had been the one who died first. The doctor, horrified, answered that it would have been terrible for his poor wife, that she would have suffered tremendously. To which Frankel responded, You see, doctor, you've spared her all that suffering, but the price you have to pay for this is to survive and mourn her. The doctor didn't say another word. He left Frankel's office in peace after taking the therapist's hand in his own. He was able to tolerate the pain in place of his beloved wife. His life had been given a purpose. Morita Therapy In the same decade that logotherapy came into being, a few years earlier in fact, Shoma Morita created his own purpose-centered therapy in Japan. It proved to be effective in the treatment of neurosis, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and post-traumatic stress. In addition to being a psychotherapist, Shoma Morita was a Zen Buddhist, and his therapy left a lasting spiritual mark on Japan. Many Western forms of therapy focus on controlling or modifying the patient's emotions. In the West, we tend to believe that what we think influences how we feel, which in turn influences how we act. In contrast, Morita therapy focuses on teaching patients to accept their emotions without trying to control them, since their feelings will change as a result of their actions. In addition to accepting the patient's emotions, Morita therapy seeks to create new emotions on the basis of actions. According to Morita, these emotions are learned through experience and repetition. Morita therapy is not meant to eliminate symptoms. Instead, it teaches us to accept our desires, anxieties, fears, and worries, and let them go. As Morita writes in his book, Morita Therapy and the True Nature of Anxiety-Based Disorders. In feelings, it is best to be wealthy and generous. Morita explained the idea of letting go of negative feelings with the following fable. A donkey that is tied to a post by a rope will keep walking around the post in an attempt to free itself, only to become more immobilized and attached to the post. The same thing applies to people with obsessive thinking who become more trapped in their own suffering when they try to escape from their fears and discomfort. The Basic Principles of Morita Therapy 1. Accept your feelings If we have obsessive thoughts, we should not try to control them or get rid of them. If we do, they become more intense. Regarding human emotions, the Zen master would say, if we try to get rid of one wave with another, we end up with an infinite sea. We don't create our feelings. They simply come to us, and we have to accept them. The trick is welcoming them. Morita likened emotions to the weather. We can't predict or control them. We can only observe them. To this point, he often quoted the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who would say, Hello, solitude. How are you today? Come, sit with me, and I will care for you. 2. Do what you should be doing. We shouldn't focus on eliminating symptoms, because recovery will come on its own. We should focus instead on the present moment, and if we're suffering, on accepting that suffering. Above all, we should avoid intellectualizing the situation. 
The therapist's mission is to develop the patient's character so he or she can face any situation. And character is grounded in the things we do. Morita therapy does not offer its patients explanations, but rather allows them to learn from their actions and activities. It doesn't tell you how to meditate or how to keep a diary the way Western therapies do. It's up to the patient to make discoveries through experience. 3. Discover your life's purpose. We can't control our emotions, but we can take charge of our actions every day. This is why we should have a clear sense of our purpose and always keep Morita's mantra in mind. What do we need to be doing right now? What action should we be taking? The key to achieving this is having dared to look inside yourself to find your ikigai. The Four Phases of Morita Therapy Morita's original treatment, which lasts 15 to 21 days, consists of the following stages. 1. Isolation and rest, 5 to 7 days. During the first week of treatment, the patient rests in a room without any external stimuli. No television, books, family, friends, or speaking. All the patient has is his thoughts. He lies down for most of the day and is visited regularly by the therapist, who tries to avoid interacting with him as much as possible. The therapist simply advises the patient to continue observing the rise and fall of his emotions as he lies there. When the patient gets bored and wants to start doing things again, he's ready to move on to the next stage of therapy. 2. Light Occupational Therapy, 5-7 to seven Days in this stage, the patient performs repetitive tasks in silence. One of these is keeping a diary about his thoughts and feelings. The patient goes outside after a week of being shut in, takes walks in nature, and does breathing exercises. He also starts doing simple activities such as gardening, drawing, or painting. During this stage, the patient is still not allowed to talk to anyone except the therapist. 3. Occupational Therapy five to seven days. In this stage, the patient performs tasks that require physical movement. Dr. Morita liked to take his patients to the mountains to chop wood. In addition to physical tasks, the patient is also immersed in other activities such as writing, painting, or making ceramics. The patient can speak with others at this stage, but only about the tasks at hand. 4. The return to social life and the real world. The patient leaves the hospital and is reintroduced to social life, but maintains the practices of meditation and occupational therapy developed during treatment. The idea is to re-enter society as a new person, with a sense of purpose, and without being controlled by social or emotional pressures. Nikon Meditation Morita was a great Zen master of Nikon introspective meditation. Much of his therapy draws on his knowledge and mastery of this school, which centers on three questions the individual must ask him or herself. 1. What have I received from person X? 2. What have I given to person X? 3. What problems have I caused person X? Through these reflections, we stop identifying others as the cause of our problems and deepen our own sense of responsibility. As Morita said, if you are angry and want to fight, think about it for three days before coming to blows. After three days, the intense desire to fight will pass on its own. And now, Ikigai. Logotherapy and Morita therapy are both grounded in a personal, unique experience that you can access without therapists or spiritual retreats. The mission of finding your Ikigai, your existential fuel. Once you find it, it's only a matter of having the courage and making the effort to stay on the right path. In the following chapters, we'll take a look at the basic tools you'll need to get moving along that path. Finding flow in the tasks you've chosen to do, eating in a balanced and mindful way, doing low-intensity exercise, and learning not to give in when difficulties arise. In order to do this, you have to accept that the world, like the people who live in it, is imperfect but that it's still full of opportunities for growth and achievement. Are you ready to throw yourself into your passion as if it were the most important thing in the world? Chapter 4 
Find flow in everything you do. How to turn work and free time into spaces for growth. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Aristotle Going with the flow Imagine you're skiing down one of your favorite slopes. Powdery snow flies up on both sides of you like white sand. Conditions are perfect. You are entirely focused on skiing as well as you can. You know exactly how to move at each moment. There is no future, no past. There is only the present. You feel the snow, your skis, your body, and your consciousness united as a single entity. You are completely immersed in the experience, not thinking about or distracted by anything else. Your ego dissolves, and you become part of what you're doing. This is the kind of experience Bruce Lee described with his famous, Be Water, My Friend. We've all felt our sense of time vanish when we lose ourselves in an activity we enjoy. We start cooking, and before we know it, several hours have passed. We spend an afternoon with a book and forget about the world going by until we notice the sunset and realize we haven't eaten dinner. We go surfing and don't realize how many hours we've spent in the water until the next day when our muscles ache. The opposite can also happen. When we have to complete a task we don't want to do, every minute feels like a lifetime, and we can't stop looking at our watch. As the quip attributed to Einstein goes, Put your hand on a hot stove for a minute, and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour, and it seems like a minute. That is relativity. The funny thing is that someone else might really enjoy the same task, but we want to finish as quickly as possible. What makes us enjoy doing something so much that we forget about whatever worries we might have while we do it? When are we happiest? These questions can help us discover our ikigai. The Power of Flow These questions are also at the heart of psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's research into the experience of being completely immersed in what we're doing. Csikszentmihalyi called this state flow and described it as the pleasure, delight, creativity, and process when we are completely immersed in life. There is no magic recipe for finding happiness, for living according to your ikigai, but one key ingredient is the ability to reach this state of flow and, through this state, have an optimal experience. In order to achieve this optimal experience, we have to focus on increasing the time we spend on activities that bring us to this state of flow, rather than allowing ourselves to get caught up in activities that offer immediate pleasure, like eating too much, abusing drugs or alcohol, or stuffing ourselves with chocolate in front of the TV. As Csikszentmihalyi asserts in his book, Flow, the psychology of optimal experience? Flow is the state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience itself is so enjoyable that people will do it, even at great cost, for the sheer sake of doing it. It's not only creative professionals who require the high doses of concentration that promote flow. Most athletes, chess players, and engineers also spend much of their time on activities that bring them to this state. According to Csikszentmihalyi's research, a chess player feels the same way upon entering a state of flow as a mathematician working on a formula or a surgeon performing an operation. A professor of psychology, Csikszentmihalyi analyzed data from people around the world and discovered that flow is the same among individuals of all ages and cultures. In New York and Okinawa, we all reach a state of flow in the same way. But what happens to our mind when we're in that state? When we flow, we're focused on a concrete task without any distractions. Our mind is in order. The opposite occurs when we try to do something while our mind is on other things. The Seven Conditions for Achieving Flow According to researcher Owen Schaffer of DePaul University, the requirements for achieving flow are 1. Knowing what to do 2. Knowing how to do it 3. Knowing how well you're doing. 4. Knowing where to go, where navigation is involved. 5. Perceiving significant challenges. 6. Perceiving significant skills. 7. Being free from distractions. 
If you often find yourself losing focus while working on something you consider important, there are several strategies you can employ to increase your chances of achieving.